<laughs> Here's the question before us this morning. Did Jesus ever talk about hell? If you do a quick Google search of that, one of the first websites that will come up, uh, it, it looks like it's right out of the 90s with like animated flames on the side of the floor. And it's like absolutely Jesus talked about hell more than anybody. Um, if you click the next Google link, it's a page from a religious scholar at School of Divinity, and he's like, Jesus never talked about hell. And you're like, so which is it, Alex? Well, like so many things in our conversation about heaven and hell the last few weeks, it's complicated. I would love to say it's like really simple. We like simple answers to profound questions. Pro profound questions require nuanced answers. We have to be okay with that. Or we have to get to a place where we're okay with that. Sometimes profound questions have multi-layered answers. And this series is about all about me and us as a church getting as close to the text as we possibly can. As close to what scripture says as possible while resisting our Western need to fill in all the blanks and all the gaps. Like, that's what we want. We want a total answer to every question. And when the Bible doesn't give it to us, we try to fill it in with what might be. And uh, I think to be a Christian and be faithful to scripture means that sometimes we have to live with the ambiguity of what it doesn't say. Instead of guessing at what it might mean or trying to figure it out, sometimes we have to say, you know what? Jesus didn't give me enough answers here to all the questions I have, but I trust Jesus. I think I can trust him even if I don't have all the answers. I can trust who he is as a person. Now, I will say this. Jesus talked about judgment a lot more than I care for. Like, if I could decide how much Jesus would talk about judgment, I'd be like, just don't talk about it at all, Jesus. We're good. You know, like, just don't mention judgment. I don't like it. Whether or not he was talking about hell, when we say hell, that word comes with a lot of baggage and presuppositions. Um, but he talked about judgment a lot. So let's first of all talk about our, our modern Western idea of Jesus. Because we create all kinds of versions of people in our heads. When you're dating somebody, you create a version of someone in your head, and then you marry them, and you're like, oh wait, they weren't the perfect angel I thought. They were even better. Yeah, that's right, you are. But when Darbs had a vision of me in her head, and she married me, she's like, I thought he liked to go out and do things and have adventures. No, he likes to sit at home and read and be alone in a room and not bother. Um, what happened, you know? Where's the person I imagine? We get married in the illusion of the person that we think we're dating, most Americans have developed a safe, imaginary picture of who Jesus is. I refer to him as L'Oreal Jesus. He has amazing hair, like a, like a person in a L'Oreal commercial. You know how they always have that great waving hair? That's the picture that we imagine of Jesus. He loves everybody. He's never confrontational or edgy, except when he's yelling at those, you know, those stuffy religious people. But everybody else, he's just loves them. He never challenges them at all. He never talks about judgment. No one would kill this Jesus because honestly, he wouldn't offend anybody. He wouldn't say anything that would be ever get him in trouble. And so I think most Americans and even us as church-going people have developed a safe, imaginary Jesus. And uh, he doesn't bother us. He doesn't get us in trouble. He doesn't push us into any kind of boundaries or limits of what we like or feel comfortable with. This Jesus isn't real, though. It's not the Jesus of the Bible. 
if Jesus, the Jesus you follow, never challenges you, you might be following yourself and just calling it Jesus. Because if you're following Jesus, he will challenge you. If you read what he wrote, if you live like he lived, it's going to challenge you. Jesus, the real Jesus, was deeply challenging, but also extremely satisfying to follow. He claimed to give the abundant life that we all long for. So, with all that backstory, did the real Jesus talk about hell? Well, before we can even talk about that, let's look at the four Greek words or phrases that get translated into English from Greek for the word hell. The first word is Gehenna. This word is used 13 times in the New Testament, 12 times by Jesus, one time by James. There's really only five times that Jesus uses it. However, there's four Gospels, so it repeats the story multiple times. And so we get 12 uses of Gehenna by Jesus, one by James in James chapter 3. Um, it literally means the Valley of Canaan. That's a real place. You can go to it today. It's mentioned in the Old Testament. But at the same time, it came to be also this picture of divine judgment. In Matthew 5.22, it says, But I tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Anyone who says to a brother or sister, Raka, that's literally you idiot in Hebrew, is answerable to the court. Anyone who says you fool will be in danger of the fire of hell. That's the word Gehenna. In James chapter 3, James uses it the same way. He says, when you use your words to criticize and tear down and attack people, your mouth is set on fire by hell. That's the word Gehenna. The other word that's used and sometimes translated as hell is Hades. This is used 11 times in the New Testament. If you have a modern translation, any translation except the King James Version, it will translate Hades as death or the grave. This is the same concept as Sheol in the Old Testament. Matthew 16 18 says, And I tell you that you are here and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not overcome it. I've quoted that, said that, you've probably heard that. That's the word Hades, the gates of Hades, the gates of death will not overcome it. Jesus doesn't pitch the church versus hell, he pitches the church versus death and the grave. And then we have Tartarus, also translated as hell. It's used one time in 2 Peter 2, verses 4 through 5. Peter says, if God did not spare the angels when they sinned, but sent them to hell, this word Tartarus, uh, putting them in chains of darkness would be held for judgment if he did not spare the ancient world when he brought floods on ungodly people, but protected Noah, a creature of unrighteousness, and seven others. So, then we get Limon Piros which is used five times in Revelation. Uh, Revelation 20, 14 through 15 is an example of this. Then death and Hades were cast through the lake of fire. This is the second death and anyone not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. Lehman Heroes, the pool of fire. Depending on your translation of the Bible, your English translation, all these separate words could be translated hell. And so even if the, your translation didn't translate these as hell, all the verses that include these words have been systematically linked together to create our modern Western idea of hell. So can you understand why this is so complicated? Can you understand why we, we have to have this series on heaven and hell? Because it's kind of messy, and we've tried to simplify it, and I think in a lot of ways we've just made it worse. Uh, weirdly enough, Paul, who wrote the majority of the doctrinal parts of the New Testament, never mentions hell. You see, it's Peter, James, John, 
commencing. Paul, who preached the message of Jesus to the Gentile, doesn't mention the wrath of God on this present kingdom and those who choose to cling to it, but he never uses hell to describe it. And so then that just makes it even more confusing. You're like, okay, so they talked about it, but Paul didn't. How do we come at someone makes sense of all this? And that's why we're in this series. That's why we're talking about this. I think the most important question we have to ask, though, is what did these words mean to the authors who jotted them down? When Peter wrote Tartarus, what did he mean? When Jesus said Gehenna, what did he mean? When um, they used Hades, what did they mean by that? What did this mean to Jesus? When a first century Gentile read this account of the life of Jesus and saw the word Hades, what did they imagine? And so just real quickly, here's what scholars believe the first century people would have thought of Hades. Um, it was their idea of the underworld, not the Disney villain with the blue hair. Not him. That's not what they imagined. I mean, the followers of the Greek gods, they had this idea of this overlord of the underworld um, named Hades, but he wasn't evil. He wasn't steaming. He was just kind of cold. He was just like, I accept all the dead and they can't get out. The idea of the underworld was very similar to the Jewish idea of Sheol. You died and you were in your family tomb underground for eternity. Um, likely, this is simply the Greek translation of the word Sheol in the New Testament author's minds. Tartarus um, was in Greco-Roman thinking this was a deep abyss, which if you look at mythology of the Greek mythology, it's where the Titans were imprisoned who warred against the gods. It was also a place of torment and suffering that mortals were sent to who had offended the gods. Plato talks a lot about this, and in weeks to come, we'll talk about how platonic thinking has influenced our modern Christianity. But according to Peter, Tartarus is the prison for the rebellious angels, not people. He chooses this word Tartarus intentionally, apparently, and he even contrasts it in the passage we just read, where he says, angels that disobey God, disobey God went to Tartarus. Humans that disobey God, God sent a flood to kill them. It's an interesting contrast. He says, yeah, yeah, angels, when they disobey God, they're thrown into the pit. Humans, when they disobey God, they've got a flood. Um, interesting contrast. It's only mentioned once. We're not going to spend a lot of time on it. Gehenna, this is Jesus' most common word to describe negative judgment in his teachings. Gehenna was a real place, just like Las Vegas. We call it Sin City, right? It's a place that's also taken on other meanings. If I said I had a Las Vegas weekend, but we went to Atlantic City, you'd be like, oh, should you be doing that, Pastor? Like, that's not the kind of weekend you should be at, right? The word is taking on extra meaning. The place is taking on extra meaning. Um, it's a place that became associated with negative images. It's mentioned two times in the Old Testament, both around idol worship and the worship of Molech, who was a god who required child sacrifice. And uh, some archaeologists say it was a metal statue of this evil demonic Molech, and they would light the statue in the fire, and you would put your kids on the statue and burn them up. And uh, it says in 2 Kings 23.10 and Jeremiah 19.16 that this practice was being done right outside of Jerusalem in this valley, the Valley of Hinnom. And so most scholars feel like by the first century, this area had become a dumping ground for trash, rabbit hole. I did some research on where trash collection originated. The Jewish people started trash collection. Did you know that? I, I didn't know that. Fascinating. In the ancient world, if you had trash, you threw it into the streets. And you let the wind and the, and the rain take it wherever it wanted to go. Toilet water thrown out. 
trash, old food, broken things she's thrown out in the streets. They said that walking through the streets of Rome was like wading through a trash pit. Um, disgusting. However, the Jewish people, because of the teachings of the Old Testament, cleanliness was very important to them. And so they started burying their trash, burning their trash, collecting it and moving it to a place where it could be buried. And they guys would unearth around Jerusalem, um, this one garbage collection site was 70 stories high, down in a rocky crack, where they had kept stuff in the trash, they would burn it, then put um, dirt on top of it, stuff more trash in, burn it, put dirt on top of it. And so they had, this was like a real world image for them. They understood what a trash pit looked like. Um, so. That adds nothing to our story, maybe, but I just thought it was interesting. The history of trash collection, waste management. Fascinating read. <laughs> Gehenna, though, became a graphic image of what sin does to a life. If you were a parent, you could say, son, daughter, you don't want to end up in Gehenna. You don't want your life to look like it. You know that garbage pit? It's full of maggots and worms and fire and it stinks. That's what you're going to look like if you don't obey the Torah, the commands of Yahweh. At the same time, the rabbis began to use it as a picture or a symbol of divine judgment in the afterlife. Now, we have rabbinical records from a few hundred years after Jesus that talk about Gehenna. And they say Gehenna is a place like purgatory where you go, it's never for more than a year, God doesn't torture you on the Sabbath, but the hope is that you'll actually become a better person through your experience there. We have no idea if that kind of thinking was prevalent in Jesus' day. This was a few hundred years after Jesus, but it's interesting that the rabbis who began writing a couple hundred years after Jesus, that's how they saw it. That's how they started to talk about it. It was someplace to reform the wicked. Did Jesus think that? We don't know. We're going to talk about what Jesus seems to be saying in the passage that we're in. Lehman Heroes literally is the Greek, the pool of fire, or in English usually translated, the lake of fire. Uh, this phrase is only found in the book of Revelation. And really, when it comes down to talking about heaven and hell, and how much hell is an uncomfortable subject, it's really the lake of fire that we really have to deal with and look at. And in a few weeks, I'm going to do an extended message. I'm going to put it online. And it's going to be a longer message, but all we're going to talk about is the lake of fire. And I'm going to deal with that's where all the big issues are going to come up. Okay, so hang on if that's uh, where you're waiting, what you're waiting for. That's where the big topic of what we think about hell will come up. Now, back to what we're talking about today. Jesus and what he said about hell. If I told you something about Bob, and then I told you something about Samantha, and then I told you something about Craig, and I told you something about Deborah, would you think, oh, that's one person. No, I won't either. Unless maybe they, you know, they've got multiple personalities or something. But, you know, we wouldn't assume that was one person. However, what we've done is we've taken Gehenna and Hades and Tartarus and even Pyrrhos, and we've said that's one place. Um, I think that's a dangerous thing to do in an attempt to simplify how messy and ambiguous the scriptures are around some of this. The Christian church has tried to draw all these disparate ideas into a single doctrine about hell. And I think in doing so, we've created a monstrosity. Since we talked a great deal about Sheol in the past and Hades, most scholars believe is simply the Greek equivalent, we're not going to talk about that. Since Tartarus is only mentioned once, and Peter seems to say this is a place reserved only for the worst of the worst angels who fell from heaven, we're not going to talk about that. 
I want to spend the majority of our time today talking about Gehenna, a word that Jesus used for fairly frequently. Did Jesus mean what the rabbi said a couple hundred years later, that this was a purgatory-like space? Did he mean that it was hell, like we imagine in Western culture today? Uh, was it merely a metaphor for the effects of sin in our lives, and he was simply talking about the trash pit burning outside of Jerusalem? Well, let's look at the passage and uh, see if we can get confused together. In Mark chapter 9, starting in verse 42, it says, Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to fall away, it would be better for him if a heavy millstone were hung around his neck and he was thrown into the sea. I can preach a whole sermon just like that, but we won't. And if your hand causes you to fall away, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life maimed than to have two hands and go to hell. That's the word Gehen, the unquenchable fire. And if your foot causes you to fall away, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life lame than to have two feet and be thrown into hell. The word Gehen. And if your eye causes you to fall away, gouge it out. It's better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than have two eyes and be thrown into hell. Once again, the word Gehen. There the worm does not die, the fire never goes out. For everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good, but if salt should lose its flavor, how can you season with it? Have salt among yourselves, and be at peace with one another. So it's all cleared up, right? We're good. Now, I'm more confused than ever after reading that, right? So let's work through this. So the key to understanding what Jesus meant when he said, Valley of Thibon, that's what he meant. He's literally, every time he's saying, we see the word hell there, if you were there in the first century, he's saying, in the Valley of Thibon, the Valley of Thibon. So we have to think about it that way. If that's what he's saying. That's how they're hearing it. Now, they recognize that Valley of Thibon also has ramifications for some type of afterlife judgment. But it reads a little bit differently because as soon as we read hell, our cultural imagination takes over and we're not hearing what the first century people heard. We need to look at the context here. As my seminary professor used to endlessly say, context is key. And uh, I think we've got a meme of one of my favorite context uh, memes up there. We have to understand the context of what we're talking about here. If we back up to verse 33, it says they're in Capernaum. Matthew 4.13 tells us that Jesus lived in Capernaum. This was the headquarters of his traveling ministry. Capernaum was uh, founded 200 years before Jesus came onto the scene. It held roughly 1,500 people. How many want to come up here and explain to me what it's like to live in a Jewish settlement um, in the first century under Roman occupation? You got a good understanding? You want to come up and tell me what they like? Yeah, that, I, that's hard, right? Like, what does that look like? Well, you can do a lot of research, and you can read archaeologists, and we have to be careful here because we naturally understand, oh, I don't understand first century Jewish culture in a Roman occupation. But when it comes to Jesus, we think we always understand the context of his teachings. We recognize that we don't understand the context of his geography, but we immediately assume, oh, I understand the context of Jesus' teachings because I've been a Christian a long time. I get it. I know it. Um, we have to be careful here. Because of the Reformation, we always think the teachings of Jesus are about salvation, especially salvation in the afterlife. The only problem with that is that all his followers hearing this, the people that he's actually talking to, who are writing it down, thought his message was about the present life. And in some cases, we're both right and we're both wrong. 
Everything they heard him say, they were thinking, he's about to overthrow Rome and become king in Jerusalem, and the whole world is going to center around Israel, and we're going to be his right-hand lieutenant as he overthrows Rome and makes Israel the capital of the world. We read Jesus' word, words, and we're looking ahead to the afterlife because we're reading them in light of the, the Reformation. They were listening to Jesus and missing what he had to say because they were so focused on today, they were missing tomorrow. And we're so focused on tomorrow, we're missing today. And I think in both cases, Jesus would say, you're missing what I'm trying to say to you. So let's just back up and try to see what Jesus is saying in the passage. Let's take off our modern Westerner descendant of the Reformation hats. And read what's happening. Let's back up to verse 38 and get a little bit more context here. John said to him, Teacher, we saw someone driving out demons in your name. We saw someone helping people who were demon possessed. We told him to stop that because they weren't following us. Hmm. Oh man, disciples, you're, you'll never learn, right? Don't stop it, Jesus said, because there's no one who will perform a miracle in my name who can come afterwards, of, who will soon afterwards be evil of me. Whoever is not against us is for us. And whoever gives you a cup of water to drink in my name because you belong to Christ, truly I tell you, they will never lose their reward. Now here's what they're saying. Jesus is the Messiah. He's the promised one who's going to gather an army and supernaturally defeat Rome. They see someone doing miracles in Jesus' name and they're like, we need to consolidate our forces because we've got a battle with Rome coming up soon. And we need to make sure we've got everybody in line. We've got all our forces together. We need to organize people if we're going to beat Rome. They're concerned with who's in and who's out. Is that guy on our team? Will he follow orders when we say, turn and kill the Romans to your right and your left? And in some ways, we're interested in the exact same thing. We're like, we're not interested in conquering Rome, but we're interested in who's going to heaven, who's not going to hell, who's on our team, who's not, who made the time, who didn't. And I think Jesus would say to both of us, you're missing the point. You're missing the Jesus gives this weird example here. He says, if someone gives you a cup of water, God is going to reward them. And it's a reward that they will never lose. God is so generous. Some people are going to have eternal rewards simply for giving me a cup of water because I belong to Christ. That's what Jesus says right here. What a weird thing to say. So many times there are questions the Bible doesn't clearly answer for me. And you know what I mean back on? overwhelmingly generous and he has an overwhelming love for humanity. The cross is the lens through which I see everything that God does. And the answers that I don't have answers for, I look through the, I look through the lens of the cross. That Jesus would come and die for us so that we might be with him. Um, that just gives me a lot of peace about the questions that I don't have good answers for. This is the God who's going to hand out eternal rewards for free water. Water is literally the cheapest, most abundant source on the planet. And Jesus is like, God loves you for work, people, even for giving a drink of water. That just blows my mind. Let's back up a little bit more and finally get some context about what Jesus is talking about. Verse 33. They came to Capernaum. When he was in the house, he asked them, what were you arguing about on the way here? They were silent because on the way they had been arguing with one another about who was the greatest. Sitting down, he called the twelve, and he said to them, If anyone wants to be first, he must be last and servant of all. He took a child, had the child stand among them. He took the child up in his arms, and he said to them, Whoever welcomes one child such as this in my name welcomes me. Whoever welcomes me does not just welcome me, 
but also him who sent me. Okay, so now we've got a full context. Jesus is talking to the twelve. He's talking to them after they've come back from a long journey and they're sitting down in their headquarters in a house. The disciples had been fighting about who was going to be the most important when Jesus conquered Rome. That's what they were talking about. Jesus is walking ahead a little bit. He hears them fighting behind them. And what are they fighting about? Which one of us is going to be the most important when Jesus is the new Caesar who's going to be his number two? Then they try to counter Jesus' teachings because Jesus says, hey, you're interested in the wrong things by bringing up a scenario where they weren't being properly respected. Remember, they were like, we saw someone casting out demons and that guy wasn't following us. That's what they were worried about. Who is following us? And so when Jesus talks about being here, he's talking to his closest disciples, he's talking to his apostles, he's talking to the twelve. That's what he says, he calls the twelve in. If there's anyone else there, it's the twelve and a child. He isn't talking to people who have rejected him. He's talking to people who are most committed to death. And this is what he says. You're worried about the wrong things. You're missing the point. How you treat people matters. They didn't care about kids. You brought a kid in. He's like, you don't care about this kid at all. You're just annoyed by it. They're like, well, kids can't fight. What's a kid going to do when we fight wrong? We need fighters. We need people with resources and money. We need people to come and gather around us. Kids had no power or influence. Kids were actually the lowest, least powerful person in first century Asia. A servant in a house was more powerful than a child. A child had no power, no responsibility, or they had responsibilities, but they had no authority. They didn't care about the people with demons being killed. There was somebody out there healing people with demons in Jesus' name. They're like, stop that and just follow us first. They didn't care about the people who were suffering. They only cared about people not following them, not respecting them, not getting in line with them. And then Jesus says this challenging statement that we read at the beginning. It presents two possible futures. You can end up a dumpster fire, like Gehenna, or you can end up in the new kingdom. And he says, some of you aren't going to be in the kingdom of God because you're so... You're clinging so tightly to the old kingdom, and the old kingdom is passing away. It's heading for the waste bin. It's going to be burned up. And you're clinging to the old kingdom, and be careful because you might get burned up with it. If you're so attached to the old kingdom that you can't, you can't grasp the new kingdom, you're not excited for the new kingdom, you might get burned up with it. He says it's better to let go of something precious than to miss entry into this new kingdom and get burned up with the old kingdom. Jesus is clearly saying that they have barriers that are keeping them from embracing his new kingdom. These barriers are tied up in their love for the old kingdom, their love of power and influence and resources and authority. And he suggests taking radical measures to be sure that they don't get trapped with the old kingdom. In modern words, we might say it like this. Jesus is telling his disciples to be sure that they don't get thrown out like a baby with a battle. That's what he's saying. He's like, be, be careful here. He's like, you want the old kingdom so much. The old kingdom is passing away. It's going to be burned up. It's going to the, the trap bit. Jesus uses the same argument again and again in the Gospels. Jesus has these sections where he says things, and I'm like, this is so difficult. This is such a hard teaching. What's he saying here? I think he's going back to this, um, this explanation right here. For instance, in Matthew chapter 9, he tells a rich man, give everything you have away. Like everything? Like, 
Why? Is that a requirement for everybody? No, it was a requirement for this guy. I think he's saying, you have to get rid of anything that keeps you in the old kingdom, and that kingdom's going to the trash heap. Get rid of anything that keeps you from embracing my kingdom. In Luke 14, he says, unless you hate, my, hate your family, you can't be my disciple. What? Is that for everybody? It seemed to be to the person he was talking to. When he says hate your family, he's saying get rid of anything that keeps you in the old kingdom that's going to the trash heap. Get rid of anything that keeps you from embracing the new kingdom. So, when Jesus says valley of Timon, when he says the enemy, yes, he's conjuring up images of the garbage dump outside of the city. And yes, he's also using that, I think, as a picture of divine judgment. But God is judging the kingdom that is. He doesn't have to judge the people in this kingdom. They can choose to side with his coming kingdom. The people don't have to stay. They can enter the new kingdom. They can escape the wrath that is coming from the corrupt systems of our world that see numbers instead of people, that see dollar signs instead of daughters, that see soldiers instead of sons. So all these questions that the disciples were asking, who's the greatest? Or questions like we ask, who's the smartest? Who's the biggest? These are all kingdom questions. Jesus' kingdom is just interested in different things. They have different questions. Jesus' kingdom asks, how do you treat kids? How do you heal the spiritually afflicted? How do you feed the hungry? What do you give the drink to the thirsty? And Jesus' mind, it doesn't matter how big or powerful our churches are, if we mistreat or simply ignore a child, we're missing what his kingdom is all about. If we don't meet the needs of people hurting right in front of us, we're missing what his kingdom is all about. If we don't heal the spiritually afflicted, we're missing what his kingdom is all about. His kingdom notices the outcasts, the vulnerable, the alienated, and he welcomes them into a new kingdom where he is king. He's having to reframe the disciples' paradigm of kingdom because what the disciples want is they want Jesus to create the next Rome and be the next Caesar and they're the next lieutenants of the next empire. And he's trying to tell them, I'm going to build something completely different. And we have to change your thinking because you're still attached to the old kingdom that's going to the trash heap. We want to know who's in and who's out. We want to know who's the fastest growing or the most innovative. And Jesus, Jesus says, those are really the wrong questions to ask. That's old kingdom thinking that's headed to the trash heap. And we should let go of that kind of thinking so we don't get tossed along with it. Jesus is preoccupied with our character and our spiritual resonance. He wants us to come into close contact with him and the grace that he extends to us from the cross and be changed people. What if the pleasure Jesus receives from our Sunday service has less to do with how well I preach or how good the music is and more to do with how attentive I am to a story that plays you tells me? Do I actually pay attention Child. What if ministry looks more like giving someone in the hot sun a cold bottle of water and less like learning more Bible facts that don't actually impact our life? So often we're trying to expand the kingdom of God through old kingdom tactics, and the old kingdom is going away. Jesus' new kingdom is coming. Dr. Steve Bessner says this, the crux of much at play right now in American Christianity is this, what is the best way to embody the kingdom of God? Is it love-based service, or is it the pursuit of influence and power? And I think, and I think Jesus would say the same, it's love-based service. 
Jesus ends this discussion by saying something really weird. I don't know if you catch it when we read it. He says, oh, and by the way, you're all going to be salted with fire. Everyone's going to be salted with fire. Well, that's encouraging, Alex. Like, what does that mean? Scholars really disagree about this. Um, they're like, I don't know what he's trying to communicate here. In fact, in some of the original Greek manuscripts, it says, you will be salted with salt. And then some say salted with fire. And so then that just gets even more confusing about what he's trying to say. One scholar I read said that the temple sacrifices were salted before they were put on the altar to be burnt. So he thinks that Jesus is drawing a distinction here between being burning trash and being a burnt offering. You can be a dumpster fire and hold on to the old kingdom, or you can be incense on the altar, a living sacrifice. This idea of fire, not just as punishment, but as a refiner's fire or a purifying fire, definitely has scriptural basis. In 1 Corinthians 3, 11 through 15, this is what the Apostle Paul says. No one can lay any foundation other than the one already laid, which is Jesus the Christ. If anyone builds on this foundation using gold, silver, costly stones, wood, hay, or stubble, their work will be shown for what it is, because the day will bring it to light. It will be revealed with fire, and the fire will test the quality of every person's work. And if what has been built survives, the builder will receive a reward. If it is burned up, the builder will suffer loss because everything they invested in is gone, and yet they will be saved even though only as one escaping through the flames. If what Paul is saying in 1 Corinthians 3 is that everything you do is either building the new kingdom, and dismantling the old or opposing Jesus' kingdom and clinging to the old kingdom, what are you doing with your life? What am I doing with my life? Am I building Jesus' new kingdom or am I clinging on to the old kingdom that's going to burn up and there's going to be nothing left? Sometimes I lay awake at night and stress over things that will burn up in the old kingdom and won't matter. I worry about what someone thinks about me because I don't have a title or some authority. That's old kingdom thinking that's going to burn up. Am I investing in the new kingdom or the old kingdom? Mm -hmm. Spiritual formation, discipleship is how we train ourselves to become kingdom citizens, living and loving like Jesus. I'm going to do everything I can to become like Jesus. Each day, each week, each month, I want to think more like him, speak more like him, to make others feel like he did when he was around. And I look forward to the, the day when the last elements of the old kingdom thinking are burnt out. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, when you sent your Holy Spirit, it said a flame appeared above the heads of your disciples. I pray that your Holy Spirit convicts us of sin, old kingdom thinking, and pushes us to live and love like you, to think about the people that, that really can't get us ahead, who can't help us move our agenda forward, the people who have nothing to offer us, people like children, people who don't even have a drink of water when they need it, people who, honestly, they have needs, but they have no way to repay us if we do good to them. Help us to have eyes for the people that your kingdom is all about. God, I'm so grateful that you died on the cross so that Sin and death and hell can be defeated. I don't have to fear the future because I know no matter what happens.